Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm here with my co-host Greg Galls. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. It's always sad to be gone for four or five weeks and then we don't get to express ourselves or talk about the things we care about. And Well, we don't get to do it into a microphone. Yeah, well, that's the whole idea. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, we're excited to be back for the spring semester here at Texas A&M. We're in week two and actually, which we'll talk about in a moment, impeachment hearings started in earnest today today um so um it's good to be back a couple things to uh make you aware of we'll be back in our regular about twice a month schedule um but in the short term we have this recording which will be a hot takes uh, greg and i uh, will be updating you on some of the things we observed over the break and some of the things really coming down today in the impeachment hearings and we'll have next week, uh, we'll be doing a live recording on Tuesday, February 28th at Downtown Uncorked with uh, Dean Mark Welch and Dean Frank Ashley have agreed to join us. And the following week, which I believe is February 4th, but it's that following Tuesday at 6 o'clock as well, um, the director of the Mossbacker Institute and fellow professor, uh, Raymond Robertson, who has been a regular guest, will be back with us. We'll be having a nice conversation with him that I'm sure we'll be talking about some of the elements of some of the trade deals. Lots of trade to talk about. And the president just today threatened new tariffs on the Europeans again. He's <laughs> uh, a common strategy. Oh. And the Mossbacker Institute is, uh, of which Raymond Robertson is affiliated with, the director, um, has uh, are doing explorations and migration and border issues, so we'll have some chats with him. We're also going to do something a little different this year. Um, I will be traveling along with our podcast assistant, Faith Dingus, to have some conversations at the border. So we'll be working with Team Brownsville in Brownsville, Texas, to get a scope of what's going on with migration issues at the border and asylum seekers who are working through the process there. We're hoping to talk to a couple of immigration experts, legal experts, uh, some people associated with the nonprofit and some folks in the local government. This has been an issue that's been ongoing in and around Texas for a number of years now. So we're hoping to have a few, um, kind of a mini series of episodes, giving you a more full picture on what's going on in and around Brownsville and at the Texas-Mexico border. So we'll have some insights on that. Today, uh, Greg and I would like to talk a little bit about uh, three issues in particular. Um, there was a, uh, a, an international killing of or assassination that we'll be talking about. That as Greg, as our, our resident international affairs expert, I'm going to ask him some questions about that because I watched it unfold on Twitter, which is not something I usually do. And it was really terrifying to watch something like that unfold on Twitter. Just so people get a sense and don't think they're missing anything, we're talking about the killing of General Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran uh, by American missiles uh, in, what was it, January no, December 31, I forget, January 2, something. it was right after the New Year. Yeah. Maybe right after the New yeah. Year. Uh, so we'll be talking some about that. Um, the other ongoing uh, hot topic that we've been discussing through our hot takes this, uh, this past year is the Democratic primary, which is of uh, political significance. And we've had a few people drop um, since we spoke last. 
And uh, as I mentioned already, uh, the impeachment hearings are, uh, senators were sworn in last week. The respective uh, prosecutorial team and the defense team has been selected. And today, rules were being agreed upon as to how we will proceed well, with let's, that. let's not say agreed upon. <laughs> Discussed. Voted, voted on. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we reached significant yeah, yeah, levels I don't of think, agreement. I don't, yeah. If you recall that in the Clinton uh, impeachment trial, the Senate voted 100 to 0 on the rules that would govern the trial. And uh, I, although I haven't looked at the votes, I'm not, I'm not even sure a vote's been taken yet, my guess is it will be straight down party lines. You know, as partisan as it was in the late 90s, it does feel like we're in a whole other world of partisanship now in 2020, um, which maybe it should be its own podcast uh, at some point this year. Is the issues of hyperpartisanship and what are some of the causes uh, polarization and polarization yeah. because um, when you look at uh, I was looking at some recent survey data when you look at people of one party uh, say the Democratic Party and how they rank a lot of different groups the the group that they rate the least favorable among sets of groups is Republicans and vice versa for Republicans one uh, of the one of the things that struck me about uh, you know polling data recently is is and this is kind of an off, you know, uh, this isn't a normal question that gets asked, but it turns out that, that recent polls indicate that people would be very leery about marrying across partisan lines. Yeah. Yeah. And that was never the case in the past. I yeah. mean, you know, whether you were a Republican or a Democrat really didn't <clears throat> affect your romantic choices in life. Yeah. And I know I... I married across uh, uh, party lines. partisan lines. <laughs> that was back in the 80s, which we now look upon as this halcyon days of bipartisanship or, or at least lack of polarization. And, uh, and it's just it's troubling that, that, that's, uh, that, that these days people are much, much less likely to get married across party lines. There's a nice uh, series um, that I'm actually using for my decision-making course this semester it's done by Tim Urban on the blog Wait But Why. It's called The Story of Us. And he goes into a lot of detail as to some of the uh, potential causes, but also some of the scary consequences of a country that is so hyper-partisan in terms of their teams, rather where your, um, your main source of identification becomes your political team rather than the actual country, um, which uh, you can kind of just sense as you follow along with the news cycle these days. And there's a couple reasons. Um, but we'll save that. So, Greg, I watched, uh, you were actually not in the U.S. as this was unfolding, and I thought of you as the, because I wanted to text you. I wanted to be like, Greg, tell me what's going on. You're my go-to source. I had I had the international service on the text. You could have you have messaged me. you. And we did end up exchanging text messages yes. while you were abroad. Um, so maybe, uh, where were you over the break, by the way? I was in Saudi Arabia. And how uh, was your trip? The trip was good. Uh, the return trip a little bad. There was a uh, there was uh, really historic flooding in Dubai, uh, really? which is, the, of course, the hub for Emirates Airline, which is how I got to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, uh, you know, that plays into another issue, climate change, that we might talk about. But, uh, you know, Dubai is a, it's a coastal town, but it's, it's a desert town. So huge amounts of rain uh, really, uh, uh, it's not set up for that. So it took me, instead of the normal one day, to get Riyadh, Dubai, Dubai, Houston, it took me three days, and yeah. uh, 
I was trying to track you down, yeah, and I kept it. meeting with your assistant, yeah. and I was like, where is Greg? <laughs> and she was like, he is traveling. <laughs> Amsterdam, perhaps. I got re rerouted through Amsterdam at one point. So I had to spend a night there. As this was point, so I avoid Twitter in general these days. And I, and I don't even have an account. Yeah, and I do less of Facebook than I used to for, for reasons that we could talk about another time. Mm -hmm. But as this was um, kind of unfolding, I, I launched back onto Twitter. Um, because it felt really significant. Um, so, uh, there was a, uh, a bombing on um, Soleimani, and then as a follow-up, the Iranians responded, and this was the actual part that really had me unsettled in the days in the aftermath of the Soleimani assassination, because um, as news was breaking, you heard all kinds of things in terms of attacks on Iraqi bases where American soldiers were housed. And uh, there was a lot of dialogue in real time between some of the players across U.S. and Iran with imminent threats of attacks. I mean, it really felt like this bizarro World War III moment. Including, including threats of attacks on Dubai while I was transiting through there. <laughs> yeah, while you were there. Yeah. So give me a little bit of, uh, to the best of your knowledge, some background on Salmani so that the listeners know who he is and why he's a relevant player. And then why... A, uh, an assassination of him or a bombing of him is important in the terms of uh, current affairs and then what uh, to your knowledge sort of Iran, uh, Iran's response was and how we should kind of make heads or tails of this in terms of tensions between the US and Iran. Sure. So Qasem Soleimani is the head of what's called the Quds Force. Quds is the Persian, also the Arabic word for Jerusalem, okay. which gives you some sense of what the ideological orientation of this force was. Uh, they are part of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The IRGC is part of the Iranian military. There's the regular military, and then there's this more ideological uh, formation that was established in the wake of the Iranian Revolution way back in 1979 to be particularly ideologically committed to the Islamic Republic. So the Quds Force, of which Soleimani was the commander, is that part of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that deploys overseas, okay. that goes out to support Iranian allies and clients and proxies in fights in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen. Uh, it can uh, deploy smaller units for training uh, in other parts of the world, uh, more covert elements of the Quds Force, have uh, been involved in activities all over the world, S South America, the blowing up of some Israeli, uh, the Israeli embassy in Argentina, for example, and a couple other sites in Argentina. Uh, so, the, so Qasem Soleimani was an extremely important person in the Iranian regime and in Iran's efforts to uh, spread the revolution outside Iran. Uh, very successfully, Lebanon with Hezbollah Syria with the support of Bashar al-Assad through the civil war, which, which basically the uh, Assad regime with the support of Iran and Russia has now won, basically won this civil war. Iraq after the United States invasion where we destroyed Saddam Hussein's regime, uh, the Iranians were able to uh, form a number of militias within Iran, Iraq to support their goals there. Afghanistan, uh, after the fall of the Taliban, uh, Iran 
was supportive of uh, Shia militias in Afghanistan. Uh, for the most part, uh, and, and this gets to this whole question about whether this was an assassination, a killing, a battlefield death, an enemy combatant. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Right? Uh, by one standard, this is an assassination. We are not formally at war with Iran, and we targeted a member of the Iranian armed forces, right? You can imagine our response if the Iranians had targeted an American general or an admiral who happened to be in the Middle East, right? Not in the United States, right? Soleimani was killed in Iraq, not in Iran, but still. We have American generals visiting Middle Eastern countries all the time. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, one could argue that we have been at war with Iran since 1979, a shadow war, mm -hmm. right? a war beneath the surface. Uh, from the taking of the American hostages in the embassy there in 1979 through uh, an intense but under the table conflict in Iraq after we invaded Iraq in 2003. Uh, and, and a number of other places where the U.S. and Iran have been at, at daggers drawn, usually covertly, mm -hmm. sometimes overtly, probably most, most notably overtly in the late 1980s at the end of the Iran-Iraq War where the United States sent a naval force in to protect shipping in the Persian Gulf, particularly Kuwaiti and Saudi shipping from Iranian attacks. The Iranians were attacking Kuwaiti and Saudi shipping because Kuwait and Saudi were supporting Saddam Hussein in the war between Iraq and Iran. And the United States came in in 1987, and we, we had a number of naval engagements with the Iranians, uh, blew up a bunch of their ships. They basically tried to uh, lay mines in the Gulf to destroy our ships. And all this culminated in, in uh, the summer of 1988 with the United States shooting down a civilian airliner, an, Iran, uh, an Iranian civilian airliner that was heading from southern Iran to Dubai. Uh, the, the captain of the American vessel that shot this down said he thought it was an Iranian warplane that was coming after his ship. Uh, it's, it's so uh, eerily similar to the Iranians shooting down that Ukrainian yeah. airliner on the same night of the in attack, the, in, yeah. the, in, in, the, in the wake of the Soleimani killing. So this is a, a, it's a fraught question what we even call the death of, of, of Qasem Soleimani. Me personally, I mean, I, I don't think anyone in the United States should shed any tears over his demise. He, he was an enemy of the United States. He treated us as an enemy, that's for sure. Uh, but I think that, that we need to consider two potential consequences of this, kind of second order consequences, one immediate and one longer term that could be negative for us. The immediate second order consequence is the status of American forces in Iraq. Uh, obviously, we've been looking to get, at, get out of Iraq for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, both President Obama and President Trump came to office saying, we, we want to get out of Iraq. But of course, President Obama sent troops back in to fight against the Islamic State successfully. 
and President Trump kept those troops there to fight against the Islamic State, uh, both in Syria and Iraq. Uh, and now the Iraqi parliament has called in a non-binding resolution for the withdrawal of American forces. Uh, it, and it's, it's created tensions in the U.S.-Iraqi relationship. And while I don't think we'll be withdrawing our troops anytime soon, it does, uh, it's problematic because it seems to me that our interests in the Middle East, if we want to get out of Iraq, is to build up an Iraqi state, allow an Iraqi state to, to develop its own resources to the point where it doesn't need us to fend off the Islamic State to prevent the resurgence of the Islamic State, and also to sustain some independence from Iran. And, and in fact, we had seen some, some indications in protests that were going on in Iraq that people were kind of getting fed up with Iranian influence. Because yeah, the talk in the aftermath of the uh, assassination, just as kind of a consumer of news, was that, oh, well, the Iraqi government's just puppets of Iran anyways. Yeah, um, so I kind of delegitimized just right, a conversation when it was right, kind of delegitimizing right, their independence to your right. point. And we and, and and Iran has enormous influence in Iraq as a result of our invasion in two thousand and three. But we want to encourage maybe the fiction that then becomes the fact that they are in fact independent. Yeah. Uh, fake it till you make it as a fake it, as fake, the it say. fake it until you make it. Uh, the second and more long term issue is uh, You know, international norms are fragile things, and they're often observed in the breach. And not just norms, but international law. It, it's often observed in the breach more than in the actual implementation. Yeah. And, and if it becomes more common that the officials of countries with which you have enduring tensions but aren't formally at war are kind of open season. Uh, that I think puts at risk American personnel around the world. Uh, so I, you know I, the thing I fear about the Trump administration is they didn't do the balance of risks uh, when they made this decision. Although as I said I, I, I think it was both wrong and a political mistake for so many people on the left, and even in the you know mainstream of the Democratic Party, to kind of not recognize that Soleimani is a bad guy, and uh, that his death is no is nothing to be mourned. Yeah, this is where the left can lose some legitimacy in general with kind of what the facts on the ground are, right? Yeah. Like this was, you know, I was having some conversations through a number of text message threads because that's what we do as millennials and some of them contain liberals and some of them can contain conservatives. And, and one of them, one of my friends that I kind of listened to to hear uh, in particular what the conservative uh, thought about something is he was like, what, what's the deal with these liberals not understanding this was an enemy of America and American interests, right. which seemed pretty clear to me yeah. in the immediate aftermath. And my, um, my larger concern was your second concern, which is the international norm around um, killing leaders of governments that aren't officially or formally at war 
seems to be something that we want to tread lightly with. Right. And, and you know, you can slice the salami as thin as you want on this. You can say, well, you know, we had designated the IRGC as a terrorist organization and all, but I, let's face it, there's a difference between killing uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi yeah. or Osama bin Laden, who don't represent a state. They're non-state actors. And killing somebody who has a high-level official position in a government that's represented in the United Nations, even if we don't have an embassy there, and a government which, you know, just, you know, less than five years ago, we were uh, signing a nuclear agreement with. Yeah. So I, I, I think that I, I worry about the longer-term consequences of that. Well, I think that captures my thoughts on it, other than to highlight that after the after the the um, killing or the assassination, yeah. whatever term we want to use. And I, I do appreciate you drink, bringing attention to the importance of what we call it. Yeah. Um, because I think that has real consequences for how it's discussed and, and what the impact is. Um, so after it played out, um, I had kind of mixed feelings about it, kind of as you describe, which is this is clearly a person that doesn't view, doesn't share my view of the world and the future direction right. of the world and is happy to use violence to make sure my view of the world isn't a winner, right? Incredibly successful at using violence. Yeah. In that. And seem to, and, and, and kind of happy and, in some and, way that that person is removed from right. the international and, stage. And an enemy of the United States, yeah. no question about it. And then I watched, in, I watched uh, the part that I actually watched on Twitter, I was driving, um, driving home with my wife and uh, got an alert on my phone that Iran was responding um, and that was the part that I watched play out in, in real time uh, that I was alluding to earlier, which was, you know, there was, there was an attack on an Iraqi base that had American soldiers, and then there was another. And it was just kind of this interesting, you know, in retrospect, I try not to get caught as like a, try to be a calm academic observer. I try not to watch these things play out in this way. But it was kind of interesting to, as it did play out, the, the, the feverishness of both sides uh, and, the, and the quick response and the, uh, you know, there were Iranian, uh, I'm going to forget who the actor was, but was kind of mocking Trump's response when Soleimani was killed of, of tweeting out the American flag. They were tweeting out the Iranian flag. And there was like comments coming from White House officials that a response was imminent and Trump and President Trump was about to be on the stage and we were going to have a, a serious response. It was kind of wild, uh, as I usually try to remove myself from that, to watch kind of the hysteria <laughs> around that seemed really um, dangerous and trying to trigger extreme responses from both sides right. in the immediate aftermath. So this is, then we have to ask ourselves what drives the Trump administration and President Trump to take these actions. And there, I, I mean, my, my analysis of, of why Soleimani is, uh, troubles me about this administration. So let's go back to the beginning of this, which really is the American withdrawal from the Iranian nuclear deal, mm -hmm. which was holding. I mean, it, it was the, the Iranians were, were not developing their nuclear forces. Uh, they were continuing to engage in behavior around the region that we didn't like but they were not uh, violating the limits put on their nuclear program. So the president withdraws from that and slaps very effective, I, I think surprisingly effective sanctions on the Iranians. The Iranians wait about a year. 
where they try to see if the Europeans can do something. The Europeans are trying to work around this to get the, if the Iranians stay in the deal. They'll try to work around these sanctions. It fails. Uh, America's financial power in, in uh, the world economic system is such that when America basically says, you've got a choice. You can do business with America or you can do business with whatever country we're sanctioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are going to do business with the United States. And, and it's not just trade, it's also our financial, you know, money going through our financial system. And so we've been very effective. I mean, the IMF is, uh, has, has, has uh, estimated that the Iranian economy in 2019 decreased by 10%, 9.5%. Can you imagine if our economy, if our GDP went down by 9.5%? Oh, that, I mean, that's, it's not exactly Great Depression, but it's, it's more, I think, than what happened in the, in the Great Recession of 2008 09. Uh, and so uh, you're talking about a serious economic issue. So the Iranians waited a year and then they said, okay, the, the Europeans aren't doing anything here. We've got to create an international crisis in order to kind of bring in all the world powers and put pressure on the United States to get these sanctions off. And, and uh, they escalated slowly, right? They, 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 they mined some ships coming out of the Persian Gulf, oil tankers. Didn't sink them, but mined them, blew them up, and said, hey, look what we can do. Nothing. Uh, shot down an American drone. Mm -hmm. yeah. Recall that in the summer uh, of 2019. And uh, President Trump said that he was five minutes away from the attack when he pulled the, pulled the, the American attack back. Uh, Iranian uh, clients and allies in Iraq started uh, more pressure, bombings, rocket attacks on bases where American troops were in Iraq. And then they, they kind of turned the dial up to 11 uh, by uh, conducting a missile attack on, on the most important oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. Again, it was, it, was, it was finely calibrated. They kind of took these facilities out for about two weeks. But it was a clear signal. You know, look what we can do, and we can do worse. But nothing happened. There was no American response. So that's the context in which uh, the killing of Soleimani comes, because the, the Iranians, <clears throat> there's a, there, there was a, a, an Iranian client group killed, we think, killed an American contractor who was working in Iraq. And President Trump reacted very strongly to that. right? The, the strategic interest of free flow of oil in the Persian Gulf, which is what America has said is the reason for its presence in the region you know, for decades, didn't lead to a strong response from the Trump administration. But the killing of one American led the, the United States to launch a pretty significant missile attack on uh, Iranian allied forces in Iraq and Syria, a group called Kitab Hezbollah. Hezbollah, same name as the Lebanese group that, that Iran created way back in the 80s. Uh, that led to an Iranian, Iranian groups in Iraq uh, encouraging an attack on the American embassy in Baghdad. And I think that that's what really got President Trump's attention, because that was an attack similar not just to the Iranian uh, attack on the American embassy in Tehran back in 79, which basically ruined the Carter presidency, among other things, mm -hmm. but also the Benghazi attack. Mm -hmm. 
And you can see from President Trump's Twitter feed, he said, this is not Benghazi, this is the anti-Benghazi. I think he thought that the Iranians were not just attacking the United States, <clears throat> they were attacking him and his re-election prospects. And that led him to a very uh, severe targeted reaction on General Soleimani. So the thing that bothers me the most about this is that, and this plays into what might be our next topic, impeachment, the president seems to, to look at foreign policy as very, very personal. What are they doing to me? Not what are they doing to American strategic interests and how can American strategic interests be served in this case? I was actually surprised and disappointed that we didn't have a stronger response when the Iranians attacked the Saudi oil facilities. I would have been 100% in favor of attacks on Iranian missile sites, tracks, attacks on uh, IRGC bases. I thought that that was uh, uh, an escalation that deserved a serious response, try to reestablish some sense of deterrence. You know, you don't touch the oil fields because that's what's important. But for the president, it seems like other things are important. So before we leave this, I have two things related to this I want to ask you about. Um, one is that in the wake of this, the president's own justification was that Salmanani was actively uh, in the process of executing or planning attacks on four U.S. Uh, embassies. embassies. Yeah. So that's one thing I want to get your take on because um, it seems that no one's been able to provide any evidence for that, but that could mean different things. So it feels like a Bush-Colin Powell moment, but I want to ask you about that. Um, and um, the other piece, uh, answer that. I'm going to think okay. about my other piece. I think it's pretty clear that, that use of the word imminent was misplaced here. I have absolutely no doubt that General Soleimani was planning bad things for the United States. But there's also some indications, and I don't know how much we should believe these either, that, uh, uh, that the Saudis had asked the Iraqi Prime Minister, uh, Adel Abdel Mahdi, to pass a message to the Iranians after this Abqaiq attack, after the attack on the oil facilities, basically saying, Look, maybe we've gotten a little, maybe we've escalated a little too much between us. Is there some way that we could ratchet down? And according to Abdul Mahdi, uh, Soleimani was bringing a response to that. Uh, so I, I think it's entirely plausible that Soleimani was both planning in the long term for attacks on American interests around the Middle East and maybe even outside the Middle East, and at the same time was uh, perhaps. Uh, carrying a message to the Saudis about de-escalation of, of tensions. Second thought didn't come to me, so we're going to move on. I think we're done. Uh, uh, we've had it's my, 30 minutes on I was going to say my apologies for, <laughs> for, for a lecture about Middle East politics. <laughs> no, it's good. But, but for those who tune in, I mean, yeah, yeah. they should know. I think they tune in sometimes to hear you describe international affairs in ways <laughs> that they can understand. Uh, one other uh, of note international affair uh, uh, event that happened while we were gone that I just that I will mention because we've mentioned it before and because of my own connection there this summer that and its and its relevance to uh, in particular China is that Taiwan had national elections and um, despite what seems to have been pretty significant uh, 
um, attempts at influence of information from Beijing and from China, um, the uh, Taiwanese decided to stick with their current president, who is more confrontational with um, Chinese interests. An, indep an independent a party that, that calls in their platform for the eventual independence of exactly. Taiwan, yeah. which the Chinese have always said would be, then the war starts. Yeah. So that's just another thing that we right. missed while we were gone. Right. Maybe we can get our colleague Will Norris on something yeah. to talk about that. So the timing of the killing is a bit suspicious for other reasons that we haven't gotten back around to. Are because, you talking about wag the dog? Uh, a little bit of wagging the dog. So in between last time we chatted with folks and now the Nancy Pelosi held on to the articles of impeachment that was going on over the holidays. They were delivered in this kind of funny, I think, traditional fashion. You know, there's pictures of everyone marching, marching to them across them the over. Capitol. But the killing happened to take place in between. The, the British do that so much yeah, better. No. We, you know, we, if you've ever seen a state opening a parliament, you know, we should it, just stop all this stuff. We should talk. We, we could also talk about the all the troubles going on with the British monarchy, but oh, it's not that not. interesting. Yeah, yeah, let's not. So, um, you know, um, in the in the meantime, there was this killing, which is a, a show of strength. It's something that Clinton did during impeachment proceedings. Mm. The Trump has been impeached by vote, essentially, in the House of Representatives, but it hasn't been passed on to the Senate. Well, now it's been passed on to the Senate, and we had this great show of, of, of walking, which the, <laughs> the big Walking the resolutions in. over. And the controversy over the signing of the pens, or the signing with the different pens. Um, but uh, so that's another reason why this is kind of perks your, uh, per perks our kind of antennas. This is going on when uh, the impeachment is already underway. But since then, we've had the swearing in of the senators, which happened, I believe, uh, late Thursday. last week, Thursday. I think it was Thursday last week. Um, and so they have been uh, sworn in. The uh, prosecutorial, if you will, team from the House, includes Adam Schiff and others, um, has been selected. Trump's own defense uh, team has been selected, uh, which includes some interesting characters of which Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz, which are of some, no of some notoriety. notoriety that we can discuss. Um, and then today there was, uh, as we mentioned earlier, discussions around what the rules would be. It seems to be that each side is going to have 24 hours across three days, seems to be the most recent. But no, as case. of now, no witnesses. But no witnesses as of now. But interestingly, um, too, as we as we kind of dive into this, there was, um, while we were while we were at, while we were gone, there was some talk of the Senate just dismissing this outright in a majority vote, saying, okay, we're just done with this, we're gonna dismiss these. Yeah. And it turns out that the, uh, there weren't enough votes to just dismiss this without some type of process of, of you know, uh, an actual... Uh, at least the presentation At of least the, case, the presentation of a case. If not witnesses. So, um, what is your sense of this? I mean, I, you know, I think it's, it's, some, it's, in, it's useful that we're going to hear some presentation of facts that seems to be after how an indictment which is how all this has been described and then having an actual uh, proceedings you know that seems how we generally think about these things there are these claims coming from the president's defense lawyers today that this is now the president's uh, opportunity to defend himself because he was cut out of the process in the in the house which is also just so we should note 
just a lie. Yeah. It's just a straight just up. Just not true. Just not true. And that the fact that the president's team is leading with that, I think, is, is they frustrating. Were given, they were given the opportunity to present evidence to the to the House committees that were dealing with this issue. There were Republican members on those committees, intelligence, judiciary, that carried the president's water for him. Uh, yeah. And I think that this is, I mean, to me, no expert on American politics, but old enough to remember both the Clinton impeachment and, believe it or not, the Nixon, the, the moves to impeach President Nixon, the, the, the reporting out of articles of impeachment uh, against President Nixon back in 1974. Uh, I'm old enough to remember that even. Uh, when you were saying 87 as some of the uh, early time, uh, some of the height of the uh, Iranian conflict, yeah. I, d I didn't want to interrupt your train of thought because it looked like you were you were right on point. <laughs> but I was going to say, you know, that is the year I was born. There we go. Um, so I have no recollection yeah, of no 87 recollection. or 88. No <laughs> recollection of that and certainly whatsoever. Not of the of Nixon. The Nixon of the and Nixon I actually don't have any uh, recollection of the. Uh, I wasn't actually politically aware at that time period, but no. I don't really remember anything about the uh, Clinton. So, uh, so I mean, the in most interesting thing to me is that the only votes we had on the Nixon impeachment were in Judiciary Committee, because uh, then the 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 tapes, you know, the smoking gun tape of the president basically indicating that he had knowledge uh, of, of uh, efforts to cover up the. The, the Watergate break-in came out and, and he had to resign. But what a the, weird world. But the thing that I remember is that there were a number of Republicans on the Judiciary Committee who voted in favor of one or more of the articles of impeachment. And it was a delegation of Republican senators who went down to the White House and said to the President, Mr. President, you've got you've to go because you don't have the support, uh, even within the Republican Party, to sustain uh, 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 an acquittal within the Senate uh, uh, because you will be impeached by the House and you don't have enough votes to sustain an acquittal in the Senate. In the Clinton impeachment, it was a bit more partisan, but there were a number of Republican senators who voted to acquit Clinton uh, on on the, the charges against him, uh, including uh, Susan Collins. But it just looks like on, on this one, it's going to be a pure partisan vote. And, and while there was, no, there was no real debate in the Clinton or the Nixon cases of the facts, there was only a, in the Clinton case question, does this rise to the level of an impeachable offense? Uh, but in this case, there's not even an agreement on the basic facts. The president contends that his call with President Zelensky of Ukraine was perfect. Perfect. He uses the word perfect all Contrary the time. Contrary to the GAO right. and their right, investigation. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, whereas, whereas the Democrats look at that and say, this is prima facie evidence that he was abusing his office for personal political gain. And, and so, I mean, we're, we're arguing two different worlds, and the vote will be... Maybe there'll be one Republican or two, but I think even that would be unusual. My own uh, sense of the vote, I, 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 
I no longer have a sense of how the process is going to play out between now and then. Yeah. And there's, um, there's actually, it seems to be in some recent pollings, a majority of support for um, conviction in some, in some national polls, um, which is interesting. But my sense of this is just just for the dramatic effect. Here is my hypo uh, here is my um, hypothesis: is that uh, a few Republican senators will vote to convict. Really, my suspicion is three to four. Well, four would four would convict them, right? No, no, no. You have two thirds. Oh, two thirds. I'm sorry. I so, was thinking of majorities yeah, to yeah. call witnesses. You're yeah, absolutely yeah. right. So my you're absolutely uh, right. My. Uh, projection is that on both counts just uh, which we i said this in, right. in public at one of our other events but it will be a majority however to convict it'll be a majority con to convict across both the major both counts but we, we won't get anywhere of course near, near the two-thirds two i actually think it'll be really interesting because i do think a few three to four of them which and it's why it's so why who we, do you see you see romney i see romney collins Collins and Murkow Gardner, Gardner and Murkowski, Murkowski are all in Lamar play. Alexander. I don't know about Lamar Alexander. Uh, he, those are the five that get named when yeah. is being squishy. And I, so that would be amazing. It, I think it would be really interesting. No, that would be amazing if if five Republicans voted to convict. Wow, that, I think that, I think Romney. I, will. I'll put my money. I'll put my money on not at no, most two. Okay. And probably more likely one, maybe Romney. Well, it'll I think be... Susan Collins will. I mean, she's between a rock and a hard place, between her primary and the general yeah. in Maine. My guess is that, you know, you can't get to the general if you lose your primary. <laughs> lose primary yeah. So uh, my guess is she'll vote to acquit. Yeah, that's, that's my... Um... Cory Gardner in Colorado, probably the same thing. Those are the two Republican senators mm -hmm. in states carried by Hillary Clinton. But we should, for election. we should say, um, it, I think we both agree that two-thirds of senators, the probability is essentially zero. Yeah. Um, no matter what evidence comes to light. I no can't imagine, what, I cannot imagine what evidence could come to light that we don't already know. I mean, we basically know what, what happened. happened here. Yeah. Uh, the, the contention that the president was concerned about corruption generally in Ukraine is not borne out by anything else. The only thing he asked about was Biden and and the, this <clears throat> conspiracy, this discredited uh, idea that Ukraine was involved in the leaking of the of the of the uh, Democratic National Committee emails. One of the uh, interesting things that did come out while we were gone that made me think of our friend Larry Knapper and the professional ambassadors was what appears to be the surveillance of Ivanovich yeah. and these I mean, it would. Uh, I think maybe we were talking about it, but it would, in in a way that would almost be comical. Glownish. Um, <laughs> these text messages going back and forth. If it wasn't associates of Rudy Giuliani, yeah, <laughs> surveilling the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, I know. which it's seems bizarre, almost bizarre. I mean, it is bizarre and kind of outrageous. It's it's yeah, it's exactly outrageous. But this is what's happened to our politics. So, one final thing that I think is uh, worth talking about a little bit uh, that's other major political news is the Democratic uh, primaries. And I believe uh, Cory Booker and uh, Julian, Castro. Julian Castro 
and uh, what was the other Marianne? What was her? Uh, Williamson. Williamson, I think, have all dropped um, a couple of those more serious candidates, maybe yeah. than another one. Uh, one a Texan that um, uh, That's from right. San Antonio, uh, and and one in Cory Booker, who I think at the beginning. Uh, people would have thought would have maybe developed maybe, into a maybe serious had a good, contender. Maybe had a good shot. And so now we're left with uh, no um, serious, well, it depends on what you think of Andrew Yang, but no serious minority candidates. Well, Yang was not on the, the debate stage. Debate stage. I, I looked at the polls before, before I got here. It looks like he's polling nationally at about 3%, yeah. which puts him in, I think, either 5th or 6th. But it seems to me, you know, it'll be interesting to see how New Hampshire and Iowa play out, of course, and that'll help change the or help the conversation. But one, it looks like we're going to have a drawn-out primary, potentially. It seems that Biden still keeps about a six- or seven-point lead over now Sanders, who's coming in uh, roughly in, in second, with Warren in a close third. And then you have Buttigieg and, and Bloomberg kind of rounding out the... Yeah, uh, who knows about Bloomberg? I mean, I think Bloomberg really is the, the wild card here. I mean, I, I, the way I've always seen this, and I, I'm not sure how long we're going to have those candidates, but, you know, it's interesting to reflect on the fact that, uh, you know, we went from the most diverse set of Democratic candidates in terms of racial and ethnic and gender characteristics to, uh, you know, Democratic primary so white. It's <laughs> yeah. uh, so old in general. So old, yeah. But, but on the gender side, you know, uh, Senator Klobuchar and Senator Warren still, still in, the, in the fight. Mm -hmm. But uh, this winnowing process is brutal. And, you know, everyone, all the political junkies always say, oh, broker convention, broker convention. But... You know, we're already down to, let's face it, maybe five candidates. Yeah. If Senator Klobuchar doesn't do really well in Iowa, we'll be down to four. If, if, if uh, Mr. Buttigieg, who is no longer mayor of South Bend, oh. have a new mayor as of, as of did, January 1. Yeah. yeah, his term ended. Uh, former mayor Buttigieg. Uh, if he doesn't, you know, do first or second, I think, in Iowa and New Hampshire, I basically think he's done. He's got some money. He can stick around, but I, I don't. So then you're down to three, and then you have to ask. You have, we have to find out, is is Mike Bloomberg four? Is Mayor Bloomberg four? So I always thought that these early contests, the most interesting thing is Sanders versus Warren because mm -hmm. there's only room for one person in that lane. I agree. And who's gonna, who is it going to be? Is it going to be Senator Sanders or Senator Warren? And I think that that's a huge, that, that to me is the most interesting thing about the first four. And maybe into Super Tuesday when you and I get to vote in the Texas primary. Uh, I can't imagine that, that both of them will be serious candidates going forward coming out of Super Tuesday. One of them is going to win and the other one is going to have enormous pressures to, to leave the race and to endorse the other one. Uh, because if they stay in the race killing each other, uh, it's a Bloomberg or Biden, you know. And then, and then I guess we have to look at Super Tuesday. Does, does can Bloomberg knock out Biden? If he doesn't knock out Biden on Super Tuesday when he's going to spend like, hundreds of millions of his own dollars? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the real <clears throat> billionaire, you know. Trump's the fake billionaire. 
Bloomberg is the real billionaire. Yeah, yeah, he's got all kinds of wealth. He's also a much more serious guy. I mean, he ran New York City for three terms. He's, he's I mean, in terms of executive experience, he's the most qualified person running for president right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would Biden come in in a somewhat second? Somewhat second vice being vice president, yeah. yeah. Just being in the rooms. Yeah, yeah and it's hard to imagine, I mean, in all, everything I mean, can you so see, fast. Can you see Warren and Sanders both viable candidates down to the convention? I wouldn't think so. One thing that we could note, just for um, intrigue, is now after those camps had stayed kind of buddy-buddy, it's, it's not the case anymore. Um, the debate, I think, and the debate squashed that, I think. Now, maybe they can reconcile. My but, guess is they can. But, but being on national TV and kind it's, of... It's not them reconciling, right? It's, 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 the, it's the Bernie bros. Exactly. Because yep. we know that a number of them sat out the election in 2016. Uh, or maybe even voted for Trump, who knows, uh, even though Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton. Uh, there was some... but, but there does seem to be, uh, he seems to have a very passionate and committed base that is not willing to accept alternatives to Bernie. The other thing that is, is probably worth noting, some of the polling data that I've seen is um, that Biden remains the favorite of the African-American community. Right. Which is a large voting block in Democratic primaries. We know that can shift. Uh, before the Iowa caucuses in 08, Hillary Clinton was the overwhelming choice, according to the polls, of uh, African Americans in the Democratic Party. And then when uh, then Senator Obama won the Iowa caucuses, you had a real shift. African American voters said, well, maybe this guy can win. He's winning white votes in, in Iowa. So I, I do think that it's, I, I don't know how firm African-American support for Biden is. Let's, let, I mean, this, we'll is why we, this is why we have elections. We will see. But the, uh, and, and maybe we should wrap on this, I don't know, but we choose our presidential candidates in a really weird way. <laughs> the number of people who are going to vote in Iowa and New Hampshire, and in Iowa you don't even vote. You caucus. Yeah. And the number of people who are going to vote in New Hampshire and South Carolina and then caucus in Nevada, it's tiny. It's minuscule. The number of people who vote on Super Tuesday will be greater, but let's face it, the turnout will be minuscule compared to a general election turnout. Uh, you know, one can argue whether it would be better to go back to uh, more direct party control, party elders control, smoke filled rooms, to put it bluntly as to who's going to be the nominee. But I would argue that the more open primary system you know, has generated some good candidates, but has also generated some really bad candidates and bad presidents. Yeah, and it puts a focus, uh, apologies to Iowans, Iowans and New Hampshireans. New, ha- New Hampshireites. New Hampshireites. I mean, they get to really dominate the conversation and they may or may not be representative of the rest of America. Well, we know demographically they're not representative <laughs> exactly. of the rest of America. So it's a, it also seems like if we're going to do it that way, maybe kind of having a day, like Election Day, where everyone votes on who the candidate for that party is going to be might also be an improvement. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, the rules are what they are, so we'll play them out. But uh, 
I, I don't think that we've reached the best of all possible worlds for how we do this. Uh, well, I think that's certainly true. Not least of which is the fact that the whole process is two years. Um, oh, it's so exhausting. Which is so exhausting. I mean, it gives us something to our talk politics, about. Our politics are so exhausting. It's so exhausting. Now. And, and this is, just makes it more exhausting. Yeah. And, it, and the, the I haven't of watched resources. a single debate. Yeah. I mean, I either. just can't. I mean, I, 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 read, I read the coverage of them. Yeah. I listen to podcasts about them. But I just, I, I just didn't have the mental and, and emotional energy to watch any of them. You know what I also don't watch is uh, Trump rallies. I, I can't. Again, I read the coverage of them, but I, I don't have the emotional energy. To and I find that when I do, if I either watch a debate or a Trump rally, the reality of the way the conversations play out is too disheartening. Yeah. Um, it's too disheartening. <laughs> Well, that's a that's an up that's an up note on which to end the podcast. We'll do better next week. We'll do better, and we'll have some uplift. I mean, we'll talk Mark about Bush the is great, and yeah. Frank Ashley are great. They're great company. They're right. great conversationalists. We'll talk about the school. Talk about the school. We'll talk about uh, uh, what's going on at the school, the plans for the school. Uh, maybe not as as nationally and internationally significant as today's topics, but we hope listeners might uh, might enjoy getting an, an insight from the leadership of the school where we work as to what, what we're doing and where we're going. And I, and I do have one question so that Dean Welsh is prepared that I have been threatening to ask him, which is, he helped run the Air Force. Now, we have a Space Force that is partnered with the Air Force, and I really want to know about his thoughts organizationally about a Space Force. Good luck drawing him out on that. <laughs> you did see? The, did you see the uniforms? Yes. Oh my goodness, camouflage! Ah, I, that was great. I, I think. I think. I think. I think we're fortunate they didn't look like Star Trek uniforms. Well, thank you, Greg. It's always fun to get together and thank talk. Thank you, Justin. So good to see you back for another semester. Another semester. Thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with us for what is now 53 minutes. We look forward to hosting uh, both uh, Dean Welch and Dean Ashley to talk about some of the current state of affairs of the Bush School, maybe some insight into some leadership, um, and then following that up with our good friend Raymond Robertson, who's agreed to meet with us again at the beginning of February, and we're excited to share we um, our trade talk, more trade talk, and uh, our mini series that will be focusing on uh, migration and border issues and asylum seekers, which will be kind of a Interesting new thing that we're doing, and Greg and I have a few other things in the works that yep. uh, might come down this semester yep. just to keep things fresh and interesting. Some, so, new, some new colleagues. Some new colleagues, some new approaches to what we might record, some new fun for you all. Um, so thanks again for listening. Thanks again to uh, Downtown Uncorked and Historic Downtown Bryan for hosting us and taking such good care of us, and uh, we look forward to... Um, spending the uh, spring with them and uh, having some good conversations. And we'll see you next week.